get training to them, books in their hands. And Lord, for all who are sick and traveling from our midst, God, we pray that you would be with them today. There's many, and we ask that you would comfort them, draw near to them, and bless them with your smiling face. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. If you've not already done so, Acts chapter 4. If, you're, if you are using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 912, 912, 912. Uh, and the title of our sermon is Before the Council, and the key words for our worshipers and training are power, salvation, and warned. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famously executed for his resistance to uh, Hitler and his army, he, he once wrote, Bonhoeffer once wrote, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. When we left Peter and John last week, They were sitting in jail because they had healed a man who had been crippled since birth for over 40 years and because they had proclaimed the resurrection in Jesus as the means by which this man had been healed. And we noted that the result of this healing and Peter's sermon uh, when he was in near the temple in Solomon's portico, this results in the first of many conflicts that we will see between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ, remember, was promised uh, to the apostles in Acts chapter 1. And it was inaugurated, Jesus inaugurated this kingdom by pouring out His Spirit upon His disciples in Acts 2. And then we saw last week where He continues to expand His kingdom into enemy territory through the healing of this man and the subsequent sermon that Peter preaches to a dubious crowd that had witnessed the miracle. And that was Acts 3. And we saw in the first uh, four verses of chapter 4, that the religious leaders, or the Sanhedrin, um, was what this group was called, uh, representing the kingdom of man, they responded to these assaults by the kingdom of God by arresting Peter and John. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. We pick up on the next day. They left them, they, they arrested them at evening, they left them in jail overnight, and then they tried to figure out what to do the next day. And this is what we read beginning in verse 5 of chapter 4. I'll read all the way through verse 22. It says, On the next day, when their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family, and when they had set them, Peter and John, in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I want to consider this passage with you under three headings. First, in verses 5 through 12, we will see, we see Peter proclaim the name of Jesus and his uncontested authority in contrast to the limited and fading authority of the religious leaders. So we see Peter proclaim the name of Christ in verses 5 through 12. Second, in verses 13 through 20, we see the religious leaders respond to Peter by conspiring against the truth. They plan to hide it. And third, verses 19 through 22, sorry, it was 13 through 18, sorry, and then 19 through 22, we see the fear of God set in contrast with the fear of man. So we see Peter proclaims Christ, the religious leaders uh, conspire against the truth, and then we see the fear of man and fear of God set side by side. So look with me in the first place, verses 5 through 12, where Peter answers the questioning religious leaders with a proclamation of the name of Jesus. Having left Peter and John and uh, Likely, it seems, maybe even this man uh, that they had healed in jail overnight. Um, they, they gather together the next morning. And we're told it's the, the rulers, the elders, the scribes. Uh, you have Annas there, uh, the high priest. You have Caiaphas. You have John and Alexander. Luke summarizes all of it. Everybody who is of the high priestly family, they gather together to question these men. And there is a great irony here uh, in what happens in chapter 4 because Peter and John in particular are placed under the scrutiny of the religious leaders. 
But by telling this story and the way that he tells it, Luke actually places the religious leaders under the scrutiny of his reader. Right? He, he, looks to, he takes these, these people, the, the, the religious leaders, the high priestly family, those who were aligned with the temple system, who had a vested interest in its operations, and he offers it to his reader. He offers, it, offers them to his reader for, to be scrutinized. And the overarching point of, this, of really all of chapter 3 and the first 22 verses of chapter 4 is this. The Old Testament system and its leaders in particular here, have come to an end, and they are no longer necessary. And we're going to see that in this conversation. They bring them out. They bring out Peter and John. They ask them, by what power or by what name have you done this thing? Seven times here in these verses, uh, we find reference to the name or to the name of Jesus. We see it in 3.6, 3.16, 4.7, 4.10, 4.12, 4.17 and 18. And as the narrative unfolds, particularly uh, not just really, not so much in chapter 3, but in chapter 4 here, what we see is that the name of Jesus is being set in contrast to the temple leadership because that's what they're concerned about. That's their problem. What is the power that enabled you to do this? By what power, in whose name, and what authority did you do this thing? Right? They're not concerned with, discern, with discuss, uh, discussing whether this happened. There's no contention whether this man was healed or not. It is a given at this point. They saw him. They knew him. This man had been healed. The concern of the religious leaders was by what power and in whose name was the healing done. So we see Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? But he proclaims Once again, he proclaims Christ. He says, look, if we're being examined because of a good deed that was done to this crippled man, let me be very clear. It was by the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. It was by his name that this man has been made well. And then he offers two descriptions, one that we're familiar with uh, coming from the lips of Peter at this point. He says, you killed him, God raised him from the dead. Once again, he, he makes no bones about it to his early audiences here in chapter 2, in chapter 3, now again in chapter 4. He wants to lay the, the need on them to see their sin. You have killed Jesus. He calls him the author of life up in verse 15 of chapter 3. But God raised him from the dead. And so once more, he draws his attention to just how far from God his audience is. The, the priests, the religious leaders, the, those who were in charge of the temple and all of its goings-on, they are acting in complete contradiction to God. They had brought death. God had brought life. But then he comments on the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Particularly here, in relation to this claim for authority by the temple keepers. That's their concern. That's their question. It's one of authority. And Peter goes there. He says, They, designated as the builders, had rejected Jesus, who had become the cornerstone. And this is perhaps kind of 
maybe slightly confusing language. We don't really know what he's talking about. Well, Peter is quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22. We read that this morning in our call to worship. Psalm 118, as a whole, proclaims the steadfast love of God who helps his king surrounded by enemies on every side. God prevents his king from being conquered by death. And then in verse 22, this king, who had, he was doubted by others, but nevertheless, God had given him victory over his enemies. This king is pictured as a stone rejected by the builders, building some building, they come upon a stone, and instead of, of using it, they cast it aside. But then suddenly, the place of pride is given to this stone. It's made the cornerstone. It's the most important stone. Someone, someone sweeps, uh, comes by and says, no, this is the stone. Peter applies this then to Jesus, and he condemns the religious leaders The builders, they have rejected that stone, but God has made it the cornerstone. God has made him the cornerstone. Now, Peter had actually learned this directly from Jesus. This wasn't just come to Peter's mind uh, out of nowhere. He learned this directly from Jesus himself. In Luke 20, 9-18, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants. Remember those who, they're set in charge of a, a land and vineyard, and they abuse uh, the, the master's, the owner's uh, distance, right? Because when he sends his servants to them, what do they do? They beat the servants, they send them off, and eventually they kill the landowner's own son. And then Jesus tells this parable, and the, the, the aud- his audience, the religious leaders, they're, ag- they're aghast. Surely not. This cannot be. And he says, well, then what do you do with Psalm eighteen twenty two? And he quotes Psalm 18, 22. And so, Peter sees Jesus applying this to himself. And then he does it here. And then even in Peter's first epistle, we see him refer back to this same text. In 1 Peter 1, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 2, he writes in verses 4 through 8, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and then he quotes from Isaiah 28.16, Psalm 18.22, and Isaiah 8.14. All of it, to summarize, kind of summarize this way, he speaks of Jesus as the stone rejected by the builders, and yet made the cornerstone and means of salvation for those who believe. And it, the cornerstone becomes the means of ruin for those who do not believe. A stumbling block to them. And so this is, these are the things going on in, in Peter's mind at some level here when he accuses his listeners once again, killing Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. He says, You rejected him, but God has made him the cornerstone of the whole building. The whole project rests upon him. And so his conclusion is what? In verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
He is contrasting here in his response, in his attack, he's, he's contrasting the universal and powerful name or authority of Jesus under heaven, given among men. There is no one else, no other name by which we may be saved. He contrasts that with the limited and diminishing authority of the religious leaders. You guys were the builders. You should have known this. You should have had this. You rejected the stone. The stone is now the cornerstone, and in him alone, salvation is to be found in all the world. Alan Thompson writes uh, that this entire account draws attention. This is what he says. Draws attention to the fulfillment of God's restoration purposes in the name of Jesus. I think back. Acts chapter 1. When will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, you will be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. So that's what this book is about. God restoring the, the restoration purposes. Thompson goes on. He says, the Lord Jesus culminates the hopes of Scripture and the promises of God to Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, and all the prophets. His reign as the Lord who sends the Holy Spirit in whom forgiveness in, is found in Acts 1 and 2 means that believers find all they need in Him. There is now no need for the old temple system and its leadership as both have come to an end for the true people of God. And so, the question for us is simple. Do you believe? Have you believed? Have you put your confidence, your faith, your trust, your hope in this Lord Jesus who is the cornerstone of the whole building project of restoration and salvation that God is bringing in this world. There is honor for you if you have, and if you have, and if you will not believe, if you, if you have not and will not believe, dishonor. And so I pray that for each of us here, that we wouldn't walk out of this room without believing and trusting in this Jesus, apart from whom there is no salvation to be found. So that's the, that's the first part, is that Peter proclaims the name of Jesus. Well, here then in the second place, we see verses 13 through 18, where the religious leaders respond to this. So I just asked you, how do you respond? Do you respond with faith and belief? Let's see how they respond. They respond by conspiring against the truth. They plan to hide it. Luke tells us, what? That they saw the boldness of the apostles. They perceived that they were uneducated. They were common men. Now, uh, they were fishermen, right? But, so the point isn't that they were illiterate. It's not like he, they recognized, oh, they speak so poorly that they must not know how to read a book. The point is that they had not received formal education. They weren't rabbis. But they had, they noticed, they had been with Jesus. What was different about them, what was unique about them, was that they had been with Jesus. And of course, all of this, these fishermen who had been with this carpenter, turned rabbi, were, they were uh, confounding them. But it's not just that they had been with Jesus. Now, that's, that's what they see and know. Oh, these guys were with Jesus. One commentator notes this. It's not that they merely had been with Jesus, but they were, in fact, still companions of His. 
They were indwelled by His Holy Spirit and with Christ, he says. He says their Lord was saturating their emotions, compelling their wills, energizing their bodies so that the Sanhedrin was not seeing them only, but seeing Christ. They were in constant communication with their Lord. So, is that true of us? Would someone... Some unbelieving government official questioning you about something you did for the kingdom? And your response, would it be evident this person is in talks with the other king? So it was with them. It was clear. And like they had done with Jesus time and time again, seeing all of the good things that he did, they had nothing to say, and neither do they hear. They are, what's the word, flummoxed. They, they didn't know what to do. They saw that his, his apostles did the same type of thing he did, healed a man 40 years crippled, and so they send them outside to conspire together. And so they wonder, what can we do? What can we do with these? I mean, there's no, there's no hiding the fact that a notable sign has been performed through them. We're not getting around that one. It's on the front of, every, of, of the Jerusalem today, right? It's on the front of the paper. We can't deny it. But we can help people forget it. And we can, perhaps, keep it from spreading any further. Let's charge them to not speak about this ever again. Let's just tell them, don't teach or preach or do anything else in the name of Jesus, and we'll let it go. Just like they were toward Jesus, they were, the religious leaders are toward his followers, completely opposed to the truth. You know, you often hear people say things like, oh, if, if just work a miracle in my sight and I'll believe or something like that. No, we wouldn't. No, we won't. They had, over and over again, they had the opportunity to take that offer. They saw what Jesus did. They saw what His apostles did. And yet, they didn't just not believe, but they actively conspired to hide the truth of what they did so that other people wouldn't know. Right? They launched a full-blown conspiracy to cover up the truth. And so, do we, do you appreciate the fact that the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of man, rejects God and therefore rejects His truth, rejects the truth? It shouldn't come as a surprise to you when worldly powers lie, deceive, and cover up the truth. And that's what we see happen here. But what happens next? Peter has proclaimed the name of Jesus. The religious leaders, rather than submitting themselves to Christ and His kingdom, 
they, 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 they're vying for power still. They want to keep the authority and the, and the prestige for themselves. And so they squash it. They, plan, they say, you know what? Don't talk about this anymore. And we'll go easy on you. Well, look in the third place in verses 19 through 22 where we see the fear of man and the fear of God set in contrast with one another. We see the fear of God in the way that Peter and John respond. How do they respond to the threats of these rulers? Right? Think about it. They had been charged not to speak in Jesus' name. And their answer, whether we should listen to you or to God, you must decide. You must judge. But here's the reality. We can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John were committed to the God of truth. And so when they saw the truth, they were obligated to speak it. Think about the the intensity of this moment. Right? We don't know exactly. So we know that Pentecost was about 50 days after the crucifixion. But we don't really know how long it's been since then. Maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months. It doesn't really matter, but it's, it's likely fresh enough in everyone's mind. Like, we still know what happened. We were, we were there. We saw everything. And here are the very people who had brought about the death of Jesus telling us to shut up or else. Right? What, what's implied Shut up or else we will do to you what we did to your teacher. That's the threat. Stop talking about this man or you can join him on the cross. And Peter and John respond with the deepest courage. You decide what's right for yourselves. We've decided for ourselves. We have spent the last three years with the incarnate truth. And we are captive to that reality, Peter says. Do what you will. We cannot stop talking. Reminds you, right, of of what? Daniel's companions. They're brought before Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. They're told what? Bow down to the golden image or we're tossing you in the fiery furnace. How do they answer? Oh, king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God will save us. And even if he will not, we will not bow. Peter and John have reached the same conclusion. Were they thinking of the night, all, like, all night long? What were they talking about? Left in jail all night. Do you think one of them said, hey, this feels a little bit like Daniel's friends? Were they thinking of that heading into this meeting? And then they're presented the opportunity. They could have said, all right, we'll be quiet. But no, they said, you can demand my allegiance, but you, that doesn't give you the right to it. I will be faithful to God. We will be faithfully be faithful to God. And so they commit publicly to speaking the truth regardless of the consequences. I imagine you could hear a pin drop after, what, after Peter's answer. Right? What is going through the minds of, of, the, of the Sanhedrin? Here are these 
common, uneducated men, these fishermen, and they refuse to go away. And so what do they do next? Well, honestly, it might seem a little odd. Their response, I think, is at least initially strange. Right? They had killed Jesus probably just a few months prior with relative ease. Why don't they just kill these two? Well, we're told in verse 21 and 22, they don't kill them because they feared man. Despite the power they had, the power that they had wielded against the Lord Jesus, they were crippled by a fear of man, something that is not new to us. They showed it often in their interactions with Jesus as well. They found no way to punish them. Why? Because of the people. They didn't care what God said. They didn't care who Jesus really was. They didn't care what His followers were claiming. It was all a threat to them. They wanted to be held in high esteem by the people. They didn't fear God. They feared man. Right? And so they see the crowds praising God for this man who had been crippled for 40 years, now healed. And what do they do? They freeze. The righteous are as bold as a lion, according to Proverbs 28.1, but the wicked flee when no one pursues. And that's exactly what we see happen here in Acts 4. Peter and John stand boldly before the council with a firm commitment to the truth. The religious leaders opposed the fishermen who had become the disciples of a carpenter, and they were frozen with fear. And so all they do, they, 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 they give them a threat. Who knows what they said. They threaten them and they let them go. So for Peter and John, the fear of God loomed large in their, in their hearts and in their, 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 their horizon, right? God was big. His opinion mattered. His anger was to be feared. His praise was to be sought. For the religious leaders, God was small. It was the opinion of man that mattered. It was the anger of man to be feared. It was the praise of man to be sought. Now, this text here gives us a fairly extreme example in, the, in contrasting the fear of God and the fear of man, right? Peter and John had been arrested by the people who had arrested, mistried, and crucified Jesus. Their very lives were literally on the line here. And for the religious leaders, the stakes were quite high as well. Were they about to launch a full-blown crusade against the followers of this criminal that they had executed a, a few months ago? Right, That man that they had killed was well-loved by the people and they had gotten away with the crime of, not the crime of the century, but the crime of history. And they're thinking, would it be so easy now that his followers are once again cropping up all over the place? Thousands of people converting to his side. Maybe we would just seem mean-spirited if we do anything to these two men. Who, after all, all they've done is healed a man crippled from birth. So the stakes are high, very high here. But what about us? Our, the stakes in our lives aren't usually this high. What about your day-to-day life, fearing God or fearing man? Are we able to navigate the fear of man and the fear of God in our own personal lives? This is an important question. Because if you give in to the fear of man, 
when the stakes are low, the chances are very good that you will give in when the stakes are high. Ed Welch captures what it means, he captures well what it means to fear God or to fear man in his uh, book, uh, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And I love the title, right? I'm not quoting from the book here. I'm just telling you the title. It's a great title. Is God big or is he small? Right? Who is big in your eyes? Who is small in your eyes? Whose opinion matters to you? Whose anger do you fear more? Whose praise do you long to hear? I will quote from him here in a blog article that he wrote reflecting on the major theme of that book. When people are big and God is small. Welch writes in the article, he says, Living for approval from others, it's a doozy. It's everywhere. We discover it behind our infatuation with self-worth. We feel it when we are substandard and the bar for success always seems out of reach. It animates our joy, despondency, worry, and sense of purpose. He then asks, wouldn't it be nice to be a little less controlled by the opinions of others? Well, there are many remedies to this problem, and here in Acts, we find one in particular. If you want to become uh, less controlled by the opinions of others, you must become more controlled by the opinion of God. You know, some people, when you talk about like other people's opinions, you hear some folks say, well, what other people think doesn't mean anything to me. I couldn't care less what you say. And... I, I think that that's problematic because it seems to, when you say it that way, it seems to come from a place that says, well, it's my opinion is the only one that matters. Right? But the problem is that my opinion of myself is often wrong. Extremely wrong at times. What I need instead is to be captive to God's opinion of me. So the question What's God's opinion of you? Does does God roll his eyes and extend a long sigh of, of frustration when you pray? Ugh, here we go again. What does so and so need this time? Does he look upon you while you're reading scripture with disdain? Who do you think you are? Reading the Bible. Right? Does, does the Lord see your struggles and failures as the whole and complete picture of who you are? Or does He see you as His creation? Someone that He has made in His image? Right? If, if you are in Christ, do you know that that means that God not only finds you tolerable, but that He has a deep and abiding love for you That led him to sacrifice his son to save you from your sins. Christian, do you recognize and appreciate the fact that God loves you? How might that impact your life today? How might it impact your heart today? Like in this exact moment, and in 30 minutes, and in an hour, and and this evening, when you're at home, whatever you're doing, what motivation might that reality, that God loves you, what might it produce in you to pursue holiness? 
What might it produce in you? What untold zeal heretofore, thus far, what zeal might be produced in you? What passion for Christ and His kingdom might the love of God produce in you? What power might it give you to put sin to death this week? God loves you. Doesn't that put the perspective of other people and their opinions? Sorry, does that not put the opinions of other people in the right perspective? God loves you, and so if they don't, that's okay. Not everyone is going to, but God does love His people. I want to make a couple points of further application here, close, and then we'll be done. First, kind of going back to chapter 3, but just this whole section. Chapter 3, chapter 4, the healing of this beggar foreshadows salvation. Right? Who are you in this story? Well, hopefully you see yourself perhaps as Peter and John. But before you're Peter and John, you're the beggar. You're the cripple at the gate asking for help. Do I see myself as this man, born without the use of my legs, spiritual legs, and left with no option but to beg for mercy each and every day? Do I, do you recognize that sin has left you similarly crippled and mercy is your only hope? The generosity of God is all you've got. Right? Peter makes this connection clear. He says in verse 10 of chapter 4, he was healed by the name of Jesus. And then in verse 12, he says the name of Jesus is the only place you get salvation. So to all and any who are spiritually crippled and unable to provide for yourself, look no further than to the Lord Jesus who bestows life and health on spiritually dead, sick sinners. Verse 22 says that the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so verse 21 notes that all the people were praising God. And so if you have, if you have looked to Jesus, if you have received from Him spiritual life, spiritual health, the ability to walk, as it were, to leap and to jump, are you leaping and jumping? Are you living as one who has received life from God? Or are you still sitting in the dust begging for scraps? In other words, is your life and your salvation that you have received from God, has it wrought in you an occasion for others to praise God? Brothers and sisters, if others looked at our lives, would they recognize the healing work of Jesus in us? In a world of spiritually crippled people, those who are dancing in the streets are quite noticeable. And so let us walk and leap and run for Christ and His kingdom. Amen. Well, for all who have been made able to walk, 
spiritually. He bids us to come. 